Hello and welcome to The Consistency Project with E.C. Sinkowski. My name is Patrick Cummings and every episode I have the privilege of having a discussion with E.C. on subject matters that range from nutrition to fitness to the choices we can all make to live a healthier, more functional life. By exploring both the principles at play and the actions worth carrying out as a result, it's our goal to get you thinking, get you moving, and get you taking more consistent steps toward optimizing your well-being Thank you, as always, for tuning into the show. How are you doing today, EC? Good. How are you? I'm wondrous. We are going to talk about uh, oatmeal today. Mm. <laughs> Calm down, everybody. Calm down. We're going to talk okay. about oatmeal. A whole Why? podcast on oatmeal? A whole podcast on oatmeal. A podcast that will be more interesting. Well, a podcast about oatmeal that will, I promise you, be more interesting than oatmeal itself. Yeah. Um, why the heck are we talking about oatmeal? All joking aside. Yeah, so I did this social media kind of spoof post that was the hidden dangers on broccoli. Yep, I remember. And it was sort of just kind of making fun of all of the fear-mongering that we have around safe and healthy foods, especially in the social media space. And so in that post, it was sort of a call to people of like, hey, what are some myths about food you want to be debunked or things that you hear about? And so the original plan was just to take all the different ideas in the comments and make that the episode. Um, But there was a question about glyphosate and oatmeal which I've had multiple times before. And then also oatmeal kind of comes under fire um, (laughs) for other reasons, typically around insulin spiking and hunger. And then I just was like, okay, let's just kind of tackle some of those topics um, in one whole episode. So it's not just about oatmeal. (laughs) Oh, bummer. Um, Okay, so you just said a a big fancy scientific words, which means we have to understand what that is before we can keep going. Glyphosate, what is that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an herbicide. So used to control weeds. Um, And it's the most commonly used herbicide worldwide, whether or not we're talking about residential uses or agriculture uses. And so some crops have been genetically engineered to be glyphosate tolerant. And so therefore, it makes it the most obvious choice to use glyphosate on them because you're going to kill the weeds and not the crop. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not totally sure why the concern for glyphosate and oatmeal specifically is so high and not other crops. What I can find, the environmental working group, um, they tested oat-based cereals and snack products around 2018 and 2019. And the short of their findings was that glyphosate was found in all of them. And they go on to say that in their samples um, that they detected glyphosate to a level higher than what they consider to be protective of children. Now, a few years earlier to that, 2015, the International International Agency for Research on Cancer did also classify glyphosate as, quote, probably carcinogenic to humans, and, quote, noting that they have strong mechanistic evidence and possible associations to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in some of their epidemiological studies. Okay, so... All of that doesn't sound awesome. So, right. so does that lead us then to the to the assumption or the determination that glyphosate is bad and that we should uh, avoid oatmeal as a result of it? Yeah, I, I think we're actually going to be okay on the exposures. Um, basically, that environmental working group, they want the EPA to drop the accepted level of what we're allowed to be exposed to on on our crops and consumption by more than a hundredfold. So the EPA currently allows glyphosate to be at a level of 30 parts per million in foods. And so the environmental working group thinks that should be 0.1 
mm. parts per million. And so therefore, it's not surprising that they find samples, to, quote, test high, <laughs> yeah. because their cutoff is so much lower. And so what I can see from the Environmental Working Group's data is that the highest level that they found in these products was about 2.8 parts per million. Remember, the upper level for um, EPA is 30, so yeah. still 10 times what they found. Um, and I know that people get really kind of scared and uneasy about any level of this stuff, but it always comes back to dose. That's the second name of this podcast. So <laughs> <laughs> yep. our alternate name, right? You know, I always like the example of almonds have naturally occurring cyanide in them, but we're not afraid to eat almonds because of the cyanide, even though cyanide is a very toxic chemical because there's just such a low dose, right? So the EPA has found that there are no risks of concern to human health when glyphosate is used in accordance with its current label, like, you know, spray it at this match amount, um, and it's unlikely to be a human carcinogen. Now, some groups have challenged this conclusion by the EPA, and so the EPA is basically doing their redoing their risk assessment to human health as well as e ecological health, and that's due in 2026. Mm -hmm. I know, as we've discussed multiple times, that lots of people are not very trusting of our government, so we're going to look mm -hmm. at some other sources. <laughs> <laughs> in 2015, the European Food Safety Authority, they were given the mandate to like, hey, let's look at the safety profile of glyphosate after that International Agency for the Research of Cancer said it was probably carcinogenic. And I think, again, especially here in the U.S., I think there's a general bias in belief that Europe is far more conservative in terms of health protection than the U.S. Mm -hmm. Their conclusions were that glyphosate is unlikely to pose a carcinogenic hazard to humans, and the evidence does not support classification with regard to its carcinogenic potential. And so that evidence um, article is in the show notes. There's also a 2017 paper by Andriotti in the show notes you know, what's really important when we're looking at things like glyphosate exposure, pesticide risk, all of this stuff is who exactly are we talking about? Like what population, what type of person? Because the risks differ. Oftentimes there is in fact an occupational exposure risk, but not necessarily a dietary exposure risk. Mm. So occupational exposure would be the applicators, you know, the people on the farm who are spraying this stuff, they're around it all day, right? They obviously have a much higher level exposure, i.e. potential dose compared to someone who's eating oatmeal. Um, and I, you know, it sounds obvious when you kind of walk through it, but this is what kind of gets mixed up a little bit in the media all the time. In fact, it was a big issue on the trials that I worked on in my environmental consulting days that was like, hey, you have evidence of this. And I was like, that's occupational exposure. That has nothing to do with ecological risk or human mm. risk. Um, so anyway, this paper that I just referenced, they looked at more than 50,000 licensed pesticide applicators, applicators, people who are using it in North Carolina and Iowa, and they found that glyphosate was not statistically associated with cancer at any site. They do note that the highest exposure applicators, so people that are spraying this a lot all the time, um, again, way, way higher exposure than somebody eating breakfast cereal. Um, they did have an increased risk of acute myeloid leukemia, but that increase wasn't statistically significant. So no mathematical difference there, right? And then another last paper that I want to bring up is this 2021 paper by Kierman in the show notes. This one was interesting because they were specifically looking at non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, not all cancers. And if you remember, it was the international agency that called out non-Hodgkin's lymphoma as the one that they had the link to. And they say that confidence in a potential causal relationship between glyphosate exposure and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma was considered low. Mm -hmm. I think the one other thing that I want to point out, and this was, we actually talked about it way back in the meat and cancer risk episode, was that the international agency's classifications, 
they describe what they consider the strength of the evidence rather than assessing the level of risk, which is really confusing, I think, for people. Yeah. But yep. as an example, alcohol, yeah, <laughs> alcohol is considered carcinogenic, um, not just probably carcinogenic, yet many people accept that they there's a tolerable amount of alcohol to drink, right, at a certain dose. And so that's mm-hmm. what the IARC does not do for people. They don't put their label and ranking system in context for people. Like how much is my risk increased by being exposure to glyphosate and how much glyphosate do I have to be exposed by in order to increase my risk by that much amount, right? So that's what's lacking with these classifications. Um, and I think gets easily confused. Got it. Okay. So, um, I think the next thing we wanted to, uh, uh, I think you mentioned this right at the top, which is that a lot of people when talking about oatmeal, I actually hadn't heard the glyphosate angle. I, what I've always heard is the insulin spiking idea, mm-hmm. right? That somehow oatmeal just magically spikes our insulin. And so we got to, uh, stay away from it for that reason alone. Um, can we unpack yeah. that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely kind of a general concern. And it was most recently kind of restirred up at least in my kind of eco <laughs> ecosystem on the online with a Mark Hyman post. Mm. He basically was talking about this study where the conclusion was that individuals ate 81% more calories after instant oatmeal compared to eating an omelet. And they mm-hmm. even ate 53% more calories than compared to steel cut oats. So, you know, basically he's saying on this social media clip, which by the way, at the time of this recording has 325,000 likes on TikTok alone. Um, he's basically saying that, you know, eating oatmeal first thing in the morning is quote, the worst thing you can do. <laughs> Mm-hmm. He also talks about insulin and cortisol response being higher after the instant oatmeal than the other meals. We'll get to that. But I just want to first look at quantity. Again, we hear a percentage, 81%, right? 81% more calories. I know that sounds very high, but immediately you want to know what is the total number of absolute calories that we're talking about? Yep. And is that absolute number more than that person needs? In other words, is 81% more actually a problem? The assumption is that it is. So what they did in this study is they gave 12 teenage boys, which admittedly is not a large study. They're about 15 years old. They gave them the same breakfast and lunch. So one person would get instant oatmeal at breakfast, instant oatmeal at lunch. The next person would get steel cut oats at breakfast, steel cut oats at lunch. The next one would get omelet and breakfast, omelet at lunch. And then they measured their hormone and blood sugar levels. Then they would look at how much did they eat after those two meals? So they had about five hours after lunch that they kind of were looking at, okay, how much more food did they eat after those two meals? It is important to note that the calories in each of those meals were the same. So if you had the instant oatmeal, you had 400 calories. If you had the omelet, it was 400 calories. If you had the steel cut out, it was 400 calories. Okay. So after they've done these two meals, these teenage boys, 15 years old, have eaten about 800 calories, which first thing there is not very much. Teenage boys are probably going to eat closer to 2,200 calories per day. So when the instant oatmeal group ate 81% more, yes, it was 1,300 calories after lunch, but that actually brings them pretty close to what I just said, 2,200 calories. So in my opinion, the fact that they ate 81% more isn't necessarily a problem. They probably ended up pretty close to what their caloric needs were for the day. I think what could be the takeaway from this study is that the protein, especially from the omelet, 
in a caloric deficit because they were only at 800 calories by after lunch yep. is quite satisfying. Because <laughs> mm, they ate less the rest of the day. Right, because they ate less yeah. the rest of the day. And this is yep. one of the reasons that we talk about protein all the time. It's very satisfying. Or another takeaway might be, well, don't try to undereat through lunch because you're going to overeat at night, yeah. <laughs> which is another thing that we talk about a lot, right? But the takeaway should not be that oatmeal is causing weight gain or cortisol issues generally. And why can't we make that conclusion? Because we don't have the data to make that conclusion. The, the study stops at the end of, I don't know, 12, 18 hours, something like that. We, if we want to know that it causes weight gain, we have to actually see weight gain. If we want to know that cortisol is a problem, we have to actually see cortisol as a problem in the long term. And so that's something that I think gets really twisted on these studies. We take these short-term studies and we assume we know what's going to happen in the long term. Do not assume. We know what happens when you do that. <laughs> Uh, you'd mentioned we also wanted to talk about um, insulin response, right? So not even not just spiking, but insulin response. Sh um, so should people not be concerned about insulin response generally, as it relates to maybe oatmeal specifically, but but just in it, but more in the macro? Yeah, like oh gosh, I'm going to eat X food and now yeah. I have an insulin spike. Yeah, yeah, we 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 went into pretty good detail in my opinion about that on the continuous glucose monitors episode, um, where basically, yes, of course, insulin matters in a very general sense, but not really so much on any one single meal. And that's again, where we get turned around. I feel like a lot of what we get turned around on as we take, try to take these really zoomed in approach. Like, oh my gosh, what happened at breakfast? I know what's going to happen for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I ate this one meal and I know what's going to happen for <laughs> the rest of my meals. And it's like, okay, no, we're, we're taking too small of a lens here. We need to step back a little bit. Um, so yeah, I did want to though tackle a little bit with the insulin side that is often, um, I think a belief out there is insulin spiking in hunger. And I certainly yeah. believe this for a period of time. There's this kind of accepted belief that when insulin goes up, particularly when it's a carb heavy meal, and that when insulin is falling, you will be hungry. Now, you will in fact be hungry if you go hypoglycemic, which is when blood sugar drops below 70 milligrams per deciliter. This is one of the reasons why insulin dependent diabetics, they do wear a continuous glucose monitor to make sure that we know when they're getting to this hypoglycemic range, which isn't just problematic from a hunger perspective. Some true physiological functions are, uh, are at risk. But when blood sugar is in the normal range, which is most of us, that falling is not causally linked to hunger. Mm. So if it's falling in and of itself, so if it's within a normal range, that's not necessarily going to make you hunger. So this is from the GNA and Schwartz paper in the show notes. GNA is the author of the book that I've referenced several times, The Hungry Brain. Mm -hmm. I'm paraphrasing kind of what the conclusion is here, but decades of research have demonstrated that meal onset is not causally related to pre-meal blood glucose or insulin levels within a normal physiological range. And then continuing, yet the notion that low glucose or elevated insulin levels drive feeding behavior and promote fat gain remains widely popular due largely to the marketing of commercial diet plans based on the glycemic index or reduced carbohydrate content. End mm -hmm. of paraphrasing there. So you know, again, I think there's this kind of this notion that, oh gosh, insulin goes up and now I've kind of set off my eating patterns for the rest of the day. And it's like, no, 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 insulin goes up and down all the time. We have to look at overall quantity in the day to understand if that's relevant or not to us. Mm. You mentioned the glycemic index. Mm. I believe we've talked about that in the past. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we've done a, if we've done a whole episode on it. I don't remember. Mm -hmm. You'll have to remind us. Yeah. But 
worth maybe revisiting what what that is and if it's worth paying attention to at all? Yeah, I think it was in a bonus episode, which um, is no longer available. But the glycemic index is was developed in the 1980s, early 1980s, as a way to explain the impact of carbohydrates on blood sugar. And so mm-hmm. it compares how much blood sugar is elevated for two hours after eating a specific item, like a potato, like chips, compared to pure glucose. And so then foods are classified as kind of low, medium, and high on the glycemic index, and it was an attempt to kind of figure out a treatment for diabetics or a way to give guidance for diabetics to, you know, choose better and worse food choices. And the reason it's sort of relevant is I'm sure this is the part that we all know, like, yes, we eat carbs and carbs makes the pancreas produce insulin. Insulin is a storage hormone. And so if we have too many carbs, that leads to too much insulin and then we get insulin resistant. And so this is the problem with especially um, type 2 diabetics. Hmm. But... What happens with this whole mini explanation I just gave of the insulin spiking is that people get very anti-carb because then they're like, okay, well, I don't want to spike my insulin at all. When the takeaway shouldn't be about trying to minimize insulin spikes, the takeaway should be, no, no, what was your dose? Did you eat too many carbs to cause Mm. too much insulin? It's not that any amount of up and down is bad. It's like, was it excessive relative to your needs? And that's the main problem with the glycemic index. It doesn't address dose. Gosh, that should be the name of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That the glycemic index of a potato is, has the same value, whether or not you ate a bite of that potato or you ate four potatoes, right? Yet we know that the effect on your overall nutrition status is way different between one bite and four potatoes, right? (laughs) So it doesn't account for the dose and it doesn't account for the dose relative to the whole person's needs. I know four potatoes sounds really excessive, but find me someone who just came off of like a, you know, a multiple hour trail run, they can probably have four potatoes, right? So that's another thing that we're missing when we just look at the glycemic index. Sounds a lot like the rating system that we just discussed in that uh, last episode, right? Um, Here's the here's kind of the rub with the glycemic index. High GI foods, high glycemic index foods, typically on average are the processed ones we overeat. Typically we're going to see more of the cakes and the bread products and the chips up there where of course like spinach and tomatoes, they're the lower ones. So generally as like a kind of overall guidance, when people see a lot of results by following kind of a low GI diet guess what? They're eating more of the whole unprocessed foods and they've gotten rid of too many of the processed stuff. And so as a very general guidance, it's okay. Unfortunately, from a mainstream perspective, it's often interpreted as never spike my insulin when really that's not what you should take away from it at all. Mm. Uh, Okay. So back to maybe the, the beginnings of this conversation about oatmeal. What's the takeaway regarding oatmeal? Should we worry about oatmeal? Should we avoid it? Should we bathe in it? What is the, what is the <laughs> final answer? Answer. Um, man, I think the real risk of oatmeal is not eating it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So cl- somewhere closer to bathing in it. Got right, it. Right. I don't know if we have to go that far, but yeah, I mean, what's funny is like, and this is true with a lot of stuff. It's when you go to the research and look at these foods that are tested, dairy is another good example, but we'll stick on oatmeal right now. In association studies, there's a Fulgani paper on the show notes. They show that people who consumed oatmeal 
overall had higher intakes of protein, fiber, a ton of vitamins and minerals. They were less likely to smoke. They consumed less alcohol. They had lower body weights and waist circumferences. They had lower body mass indexes. It's an association. But hey, that's a good indication that oatmeal can be part of a healthy diet. Mm-hmm. And then even in randomized controlled trials, we see a positive effect. There was a meta-analysis from 2016. This is the Hope paper. And they found that oatmeal had lowering effects on LDL cholesterol and other cholesterol components, and that the inclusion of oat-containing foods may be a strategy for achieving targets in cardiovascular disease risk reduction. And they think that's because of the beta-glucan content of oatmeal. So that's a soluble fiber. I'm sure people have heard about kind of the benefits of soluble fiber generally. And and basically the mechanism for soluble fiber for lowering cholesterol is that it literally binds to the cholesterol that you just ate, but it binds it in the intestine before you absorb it. And so therefore it prevents it being absorbed and it just goes out the back end, hence not elevating your uh, cholesterol. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if anything, I think we should be encouraging people to eat oatmeal, not discouraging them, not talking about the hidden dangers of oatmeal, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I wouldn't worry so much. I know, gosh, back in my old days, it was like, no, 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 they have to be steel cut, you know, or they have to be old fashioned rolled and they can't be instant per se. But I would, of course, err more on the side of like less added sugar to the product, not how the oats are cut. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, oatmeal cookies, those aren't oatmeal. Um, oatmeal is oatmeal. (laughs) That's where I think we kind of get a little bit, uh, astray on some of these ideas, but, um, we shouldn't be worried about the glyphosate exposure. We shouldn't be worried about the insulin response so long as our overall dose is correct. And it can be quite a healthy addition to the diet. Love it. All right. Before we wrap up, anything else worth mentioning as it relates to, uh, oatmeal? (laughs) Yeah, I was possibly going to wrap it into this too. There's often concerns about just grains generally, as well Mm. as even, um, like, is our oats contaminated with gluten? And what about people who have gluten sensitivities or not even non-gluten celiac sensitivities? So we covered a lot of that in Quick Bites number one. And so the link for that is in the show note. Way back. Show notes, way back, way, way back. So you can scroll, scroll, scroll on Spotify or wherever, um, or you can check out the show notes and get the deep dive on that. Love it. All right. Thank you, EC. Uh, Thank you, everybody out there for listening. If you have a friend or a sister or a parent who swears by oatmeal and for the life of you, you've been arguing with them for years, send them this episode and apologize. Uh, And then I'll stick around next week. EC and I will be back with another episode of The Consistency Project. Thanks, as always, for tuning into the show. I'm sure at this point you've heard me talk about the 800 gram challenge and lazy macros, but if you're not really sure what they are, or you want to get started on them with a little bit more guidance, I wanted to let you know that I have eBooks on both of these programs. And these eBooks are not just some nine or 10 page document that you flip through in a couple minutes. Instead, they are a comprehensive resource, not only for the why behind these methodologies, but also the how. So you're going to get answers to questions like, does the glycemic index matter? Or why is protein good for health? As well as tips and strategies, like how do you make the day successful? And what do you do when you go out to a restaurant? What are some meal ideas? These eBooks have it all. So head on over to optimizemenutrition.com slash 800G for the 800 gram challenge or slash lazy macros for the lazy macros eBooks. The links are also in the show notes and you'll get a bundled discount for both. Again, it's optimizemenutrition.com slash 800G or slash lazy macros to get started. 
One final note, both the 800 gram challenge and lazy macros are registered trademarks. So if you're looking to run a challenge at your gym or with a specific group or a corporate wellness program, contact me through my website or at info at optimizemenutrition.com for your options.